I still recall from the books I read All the great empires built in my head But every year I raise one more I bought it all and I dropped off But I'm, I'm still seeking time Welcome to a particularly Australian episode of Seeking Tumnus. When you think back to high school and you recall Australian books you read, you might think of February Dragon, Playing Beady Bow, Looking for Alabrandi, Came Back to Tell You I Could Fly, or even the spectacularly named Laurie Loved Me Best by Robin Klein. <laughs> but for many, it was John Marsden's Tomorrow When the War Began and its several sequels, that invaded their hearts, stole a little of their innocence, and changed the landscapes of their youth forever. My name is Laurie, and I'm joined by my fellow hosts, the kick-ass but suspected collaborator, Keith Rowe. Hey, hey. The brutal, the bloody Bree. G'day. <laughs> you didn't sound brutal or bloody. You had one job. <laughs> Bloody galah. <laughs> Stone the flaming crow. <laughs> oh, you stole my line. Oh. And the pacifist, Patrick Moon. I surrender. <laughs> Before we go any further, a warning. Imagine it's Australia Day. You've had a few too many tinnies and perhaps one more snag than's good for your waistline. And you lay eyes blinking lazily in the harsh Australian sun. A little red you're feeling like a slightly pissed blue-tongued lizard. It's Australia. Familiar, friendly, safe. As some galah with a bunch of firecrackers whoops drunkenly in the distance, you... You feel a little proud. Not so proud as to get the tattoo of the Southern Cross, which has somehow become a little bit tainted by racist bogan dickheads. <laughs> but proud nonetheless. The radio's playing Triple J's Hottest 100... A few dozen planes roar overhead, the neighbours are playing backyard cricket, and all is right in the world. Except that dickhead with the firecrackers just won't stop. And there's more than one by the sounds of it. They're loud, really loud. And those whoops don't sound so much like whoops anymore, but a little like screams. The radio cuts suddenly short, and as you stand and hastily try and slip on your thongs, you wonder... Stone the flaming crows, Elsa. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Why are there so many planes? If this kind of malarkey intrigues you, then stop. Hit pause for a day or two and burn through tomorrow when the war began. It's a real ripper, a bonza Aussie tale and a really easy read. But what we're about to do is spoil the living daylights out of it. We warned you, fair cop. Keith, why don't you drop us into the world of Tomorrow When the War Began with page one and a bit. <laughs> Chapter one. It's only half an hour since someone, Robin I think, said we should write everything down. And it's only 29 minutes since I got chosen. And for those 29 minutes, I've had everyone crowded around me gazing at the blank page and yelling ideas and advice. Rack off, guys. I'll never get this done. I haven't got a clue where to start and I can't concentrate with all this noise. Okay, that's better. I've told them to give me some peace, and Homer backed me up, so at last they've gone and I can think straight. 
I don't know if I'll be able to do this. I might as well say so now. I know why they chose me, because I'm meant to be the best writer, but there's a bit more to it than just being able to write. There's a few little things that can get in the way. Little things like feelings, emotions. Well, we'll come to that later. Maybe. We'll have to wait and see. I'm down at the creek now, sitting on a fallen tree. Nice tree. Not an old rotten one that's been eaten by witchery grubs, but a young one with a smooth reddish trunk and the leaves still showing some green. It's hard to tell why it fell. It looks so healthy. But maybe it grew too close to the creek. It's good here. This pool's only about 10 metres by 3, but it's surprisingly deep. Up to your waist in the middle. There's constant little concentric ripples from insects touching it as they skim across the surface. I wonder where they sleep, and when. I wonder if they close their eyes when they sleep. I wonder what their names are. Busy, anonymous, sleepless insects. To be honest, I'm only writing about the pool to avoid doing what I'm meant to be doing. That's like Chris, finding ways to avoid doing things he doesn't want to do. See? I'm not holding back. I warned them I wouldn't. I hope Chris doesn't mind my being chosen to do this instead of him, because he is a really good writer. He did look a bit hurt, a bit jealous even, but he hasn't been in this from the start, so it wouldn't have worked. Well, I'd better stop biting my tongue and start biting the bullet. There's only one way to do this, and that's to tell it in order, chronological order. I know writing it down is important to us. That's why we all got so excited when Robin suggested it. It's terribly, terribly important. Recording what we've done in words, on paper, it's got to be our way of telling ourselves that we mean something, that we matter, that the things we've done have made a difference. I don't know how big a difference, but a difference. Writing it down means we might be remembered, and by God that matters to us. None of us wants to end up as a pile of dead white bones, unnoticed, unknown, and worst of all, with no one knowing or appreciating the risks we've run. That's page one point something. Fantastic. Thank you, Keith. What did you think about it, Laurie? The first few pages don't really give you the picture that the rest of the chapter does. The first chapter I found really intriguing, and even just rereading the book in the last few days, I found that first chapter to be a real gripper. First couple of pages, yeah, okay, it's a little bit of a hint about some kind of traumatic event going on, and that had me a little bit intrigued, but it's really the subsequent pages that captured my fancy. What about you, Keith? Yeah, you've touched on the main points there. It's a little bit of a slow start. And the first chapter as well, it built and let you get in touch and get a feeling for all the characters. And you see the start of that here when it mentions Chris is is this way and a few of the other characters as well. So I did like it. It was just a prelude to, to what was coming next. And that's where the real strengths of it lie. I thought the first page or two kind of sucked. I started reading it and was a little bit despairing about what was to follow because it seems like every writing course that you attend or every piece of advice that you read about writing fiction says that you need to get the reader to bite or get the agent or the editor or the you know whoever to bite straight off the bat from that that first sentence that first page and this just prevaricates and labs and it doesn't do any of the things that I want the first page of the book to do like there's such a a nice premise that's wrapped up in there that this whole series is based upon and yet you choose to open with the the girl talking about how she finds it really difficult to write and making some in jokes about the the friends and everything it just blows frankly wow (laughs) (laughs) would you find it different if they used the end of the book 
early on, like right now, something like I'm sitting here and I can hear the sound of the helicopter combing over the top of the mountains, some kind of allusion to the excitement that actually happens at the end of the book? Absolutely. Mm. Some engagement. And the epilogue actually harked back to that first part of the first chapter, Mm. but it, it wasn't nearly so wordy or roundabout in what it was trying to achieve. It kind of had, it had plenty more punch and the introduction just had none. I w- it was dead in the water for me from the get-go. And I thought, how are we going to redeem this absolutely pitiful start to oh, the wow. story? I really want to jump in there, Pat, but let's let's hear from Bree. Well, interestingly, I actually stand with Patrick on this oh, one. Oh, wow. No, because I actually recall when I first read this as a child or as a 13-year-old, 14-year-old at school, that was my problem. I had to read the first chapter and put the book away and then it was really through somebody trying to convince me that it was in fact an excellent read and it got more exciting after the first couple of chapters that I sat back down and went through it again and I had that exact same feeling this time around I don't care I I would rather see the characters unravel a little bit more through the excitement of the story having Hmm. said that you should see my copy of this book it is pages half torn the cover is all crinkled so it's not that I don't read it. <laughs> we'll have to compare books to see whose is the most well-read. <laughs> I'll take a photo of it and send it to you. It's just ravaged. <laughs> I feel like the slow start, just in its defence, so the first couple of chapters, and we'll probably get to this in a synopsis, but the first couple of chapters are the, are the kids planning to go on this camping trip. It seems very run-of-the-mill, I agree, but it all serves as a... I don't know, like a slow build. This is the bubbling cauldron for the great surprise that awaits them when they return. And the little hints of what's coming, like you hear in the first page or two about what we've done and we've made a difference. You really wonder what that relates to when they're just going on a camping trip. And then as the camping trip unfolds and hints are revealed about what's happening in the outside world, awaiting them when they get back, and then the dramatic reveal when they get home to the farm. You could allay that with one simple sentence at the very beginning with, I'm sitting here huddled in my tent while I can hear the helicopters combing the hills around me. It's been half an hour since someone, it was Robin, I think, who suggested that I should we should record it. You know, like it's not a... Doesn't even have to be. But there's no mystery then. Like it's no there's no dramatic reveal. It it's is just it is. It's just why are they on the run? Or is there have they done something that's criminal that they're trying to hide from? I'm totally on board with Laurie's position here. I think that's one of the strengths of the book. Even though the character is recounting chronologically she does so in a way where you're on the journey with them understanding and finding out what's happening because I think that's half of the enjoyment in this book is the way that rather than telling you up front what they're facing you learn with them what's out there and the mystery and the unknowing is part of the suspense and part of the the charm that really has me drawn to this book. So I'll probably get more into this when I talk about my thoughts on it, but I'm totally with Laurie here. And even though the first couple of pages might not have been so strong, as you got into the first chapter, it starts to introduce the characters. And it's a character story, in my opinion. So that's right up my alley, as you probably all know. So I won't go on too much more yet because there's more of this to come. We're talking apples and oranges now too, because I'm talking about the first two pages. I think you can have foreshadowing and you can have mystery without being a tease, which is really what the the first two pages was. It's dancing around the topic of actually sitting down and writing, which was an absolute snore for me. I thought it was a bit petty and it it seemed like the author was playing with me from 
the get-go, and it did considerably pick up after that point. So, But it was really well read by, I can't remember who was, was that? Uh, yeah, me, that was it, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it was a while ago. <laughs> <laughs> so let's hear about this group of country school kids who decide to go hiking and camping over a long weekend or a week. <laughs> Tell us more, Bree. <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> Uh, so this group of, there's around six of them, they head off the beaten track and hike into some fairly rugged terrain into an area which is known as Hell, where local folklore maintains that just one other person, a hermit, may have ever been before. While they're away, they hear and see hundreds of planes fly overhead. Australia has been invaded by an unnamed neighbouring country. When they return from their trip, they discover their farms deserted their animals hungry and dying, and their farms unattended. Understandably frightened and desperate to understand what happened, they head into Wirrawee, the country town, and find the majority of the locals have been rounded up and held in a temporary prison at the local showgrounds. They're separated from one another and must fight to both stay alive and recover their missing group members. Whilst dealing with the stress of both combat and, of course, the blossoming adolescent romances, They decide to use hell as a hidden base rather than turn themselves in. Not content with hiding, they decide to fight back. They blow up the Wirrawee Bridge, which is being used by soldiers to ferry supplies to and from the nearby port. So the group is faced with the harsh reality of loss, with one of their group being shot and severely wounded. Why did you choose it, Pat? I will tell you that, but before I do, I'd just like to address the the elephant in the room from the synopsis that you've given there where you talk about the unnamed country that has invaded Australia and it's mm. probably against the the culture of of PC that has has built up in the world lately but i think it's patently obvious where the country is we don't like them they're racist it may be racist to say that they're notoriously foul-mouthed foul-tempered and aggressive, and it's it's New Zealand. <laughs> New Zealand. I thought you were going with Tasmania. <laughs> no, and I just thought I'd put it out there. I thought it was going to go with Trump country. <laughs> it needed to be said. <laughs> that New Zealand Air Force, there's some force to be reckoned with. There's a bit of contention as far as why I chose it, because this was more of a, a group effort in the choosing, and it's sort of fallen upon my head because I was one of the many who has read some Marsden as a kid. And it's something that I have particularly fond memories of, actually. One of those series that really had me glued to the couch, essentially, just turning page after page after page when I was a teenager. And I think at that stage, either... Are there five books? I think there's more than that. I think there's six in the first... if, If we disregard the Ellie Chronicles... No, I think there's six in the first series... Okay. Mm. I, th- I think at the time that I started reading it, I, I had a box set and it had the first f- maybe four or five books in it. I think the series was just about concluded, if not entirely concluded at that point. Seven. And so it was one that I could just smash through book after book after book. And they're not hefty, but uh, it was one of those kind of marathon sessions that characterized my reading as a teenager when I would just sit there for six hours of the day trying to get through as much as I could because I couldn't bear to put the book down. And Marsden writes with a kind of maturity that doesn't patronise the teenage reader. 
it's something that is pitched a little bit higher than some other of the young adult fiction and it really spoke to me as a kid and so I was excited to come back to it I was excited to see whether there was something there that still raised my interest after so many years that that still spoke to me now and would hopefully not make me cringe with my teenage ideas of quality. I'd be interested to know what you guys thought of it this time around before I dive into my feelings <laughs> on such. There were seven books, actually. I've just had a quick look on Goodreads. Seven, seven books? Mm. Maybe, maybe my memory is sort of fooling me and I haven't actually read them all. I can loan them all to you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure... I have the number five in my head and I feel like there was a resolution to the story, but maybe my memory is playing havoc on me and I need to go back to Wikipedia and read a synopsis of the whole series. Let me go through the titles just quickly, Pat, to refresh your memory. Tomorrow When the War Began, that Mm -hmm. was in 1993, the first book, the one we're discussing. And then The Dead of Night, The Third Day The Frost, which was published apparently in the US as A Killing Frost, which is interesting. Darkness Be My Friend. Burning for Revenge was a bit of a dodgy title. Yeah. The Night is for Hunting. And then the last one, which I'm not sure I've read, The Other Side of Dawn. I only remember reading up to and including Burning for Revenge. Right. I think that was the last book that I read. Yeah, okay. Do you think your interest waned because the series became less exciting? Well, like I said, I, I had a box set. I had... I'm pretty sure it was five books all together in one set. And so it may have been as simple as... I thought, hey, this is the this is it, this is the series. And when further books were published, I just never realised or never got around to reading them or something along those lines. I certainly didn't lose interest or disavow my like of the series at any point. I'm in a similar position, Pat. I read all the way up to The Night is for Hunting, and I realise now why I maybe didn't read the last one, The Other Side of Dawn. It's because The Night is for Hunting was released in 1998, and The Other Side of Dawn was in 99, and that was the year I left high school, so suddenly I was off too busy to be reading books. And You weren't sort of cruising Dimmocks looking for the John Marsden section any longer. No, probably not. <laughs> I just somehow missed it. Maybe I had moved completely over to the... Harry Potter. Fantasy and sci-fi <laughs> book section. Yeah, or you're right, or maybe Harry Potter and got stuck in a series and then never went back, and I really regret it. I might have to go find this last one. Yeah, I'd be really interested to, I don't know whether I'll I'll read them, but maybe just check out the synopses and just see what the resolution is because it's it's all very fuzzy in my memory and maybe it's a testament to what Keith said about it being a character piece in that I remember some of the resolutions of the character relationships much more clearly than I remember the outcome of the the plot and the invasion itself. So Mm. what did you think about it on this go-round, Keith? So I have to uh, put my credentials out there as well in terms of reading the series. And I don't know what this says about me, but basically I've only read the first book and I love the first book, but I never pursued reading any of the others. And reading it again, I had the same feeling that I did when I got to the end and that's I want more. But I haven't read any more, <laughs> despite them being readily available, of course. So I don't know what that says about me. And maybe it's the time I was reading it as a 12, 13-year-old that, you know, you start to have other interests that take up your time or, you know, I don't know what it is, but I've only read this book. You're clearly not the commitment type, okay? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> Player's going to play, 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 play. <laughs> Tell that to his wife of 37 years. 
as the second youngest in the podcast, I resent that comment, Laurie. <laughs> <laughs> so my feelings on this book, I really love this book. It's I would consider it Australian young adult literature, sacred ground. The language, the settings, the interactions, there's something iconically Australian about it all, the rural element as well that plays into that. And as I've said already, it's, in my opinion, a character piece. You have the invasion which drives the characters and gives them the platform on which they can flourish, but it's really about the characters. And that's why I like this book so much because the characters are believable and reading it as a 12, 13-year-old, they're a couple of years older than that, obviously. You can relate to them, the feelings that are portrayed through Ellie, you hear mostly of her feelings, obviously, because she's the author, but you also see the interactions between the others, the glances, and that teenage sort of humour as well comes off the page nicely. It's really about the characters for me. They're going on a sort of Wizard of Oz-esque journey to uncover their true... What a bizarre comparison. <laughs> well, that's, the, that's the ultimate compliment coming from Keith. I think we take it and go with it. <laughs> It is a bizarre comparison perhaps, but you have the characters that maybe at first they're typecast, they're underestimated or they don't know what they're capable of and and they, they learn it on the journey by being put in these positions where they need to react to something that's happening. And that's where it's just like the Wizard of Oz, you know, the cowardly lion turns out he already has a heart, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Wait, hang on. Cut that entirely. <laughs> that's totally getting cut. No way. That's <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> you assholes. Uh, and, and I think the prevailing lesson from that is that you don't make judgments on characters based on first impressions or stereotypes and you don't pigeonhole people. And Ellie learnt that, the others learnt that as well about these characters. And Homer was the one that probably was the most pigeonholed based on his boisterous and... Um, childish behavior but he, he really got a chance to flourish in this situation and everyone saw the true metal of his character well i'll switch over to the pacing of the book which i think pat and brie maybe had an, a bit of an issue with but i think that was this, one of the strengths of the book i really liked the way that you were slowly introduced to the characters i think it was around 20 percent through the book before there was any sort of conflict and I think that's that's great because you got to learn about the characters before and then feel them through the journey or experience them through the journey and see how they've changed towards the end. So I like that aspect of it a lot. In terms of the relationships between the characters, they gave the appropriate attention to it. It would have been easy to have it be about the invasion, but there was plenty of time given to the relationship between the characters. And that plays through nicely as a teenager writing this, there's raging teenage hormones. And, and that's part of the strength of the book, once again, for me. It was kind of, in a way, I can draw parallels between this and The Hunger Games in, in the way that they're still teenagers. They're still obviously teenagers. They're in this situation that's unnatural to them, but their teenage emotions still play through. And that was really quite enjoyable as a 12, 13-year-old reading it. And even again now, I can relate to it still. So I really enjoyed that. So overall, really liked it. So what did you think, Laurie? I absolutely loved it when I was young. And I absolutely love it now. Since finishing the book a couple of days ago, I started reading the first book of the Ellie Chronicles, and I'm about halfway through that now, just to visit it slightly before this recording. But I really want to go back and read all of the others, especially considering that it might be one that I haven't read. How does the Ellie Chronicles slot into the universe? Where does it fit? Okay, so the war is over. There's been a peace treaty brokered. By New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's been a border drawn, so people, I think it's north of the border, are all the invadees and they're allowed to settle there and they've claimed that piece of land and then 
let's say, south of that border is Ellie and a whole bunch of people that have been displaced. So Ellie's living on the farm with her parents and she's gone back to school and they've got a little orphan boy that they must have met somewhere else in the other books. So it seems like there's an uneasy sort of peace treaty. Can I interject and just ask who the invaders are? Do they, do they get identified explicitly no, in the no, subsequent? No, They definitely don't get called in Indonesia. I mean in the book Fee apparently speaks hundreds of languages And something I can identify with And she proudly says that it's not China It's not Taiwan It's not And she runs through all these countries But it's just an unnamed aggressor She didn't Mm. say it was not Indonesia (laughs) (laughs) Anyway So living on the farm She's out the back paddock with Homer And the little orphan boy, they're going for a bushwalk and suddenly they start hearing shots. So they run back to the house and her family's all been killed. So that's the first chapter of the book. Oh, Jesus, that's a... (laughs) That's one of those sort of slap-in-the-face reboots to a series, isn't it, where you have presumably a happy ending based on what you've said about the, the start of the book and then you snatch that away in order to have the the series perpetuated it's some the same criticism that people might have about uh, recent box office juggernauts and the <laughs> like that the, the resolution that you, you become so attached to as a fan is somewhat undermined by the the need to continue the series yeah right and it, it kind of gets from bad to worse well actually i would say that the murder of her parents is probably the worst that's probably up there <laughs> yeah yeah but <laughs> i would give that a 9 out of 10 the bank is after a farm <laughs> Don't tell me she has financial problems (laughs) too Exactly And there starts being whispers about a liberation Well not I think the the party's called liberation But a secret guerrilla group That sort of strikes north of the border And rescues prisoners of war That haven't been returned And things like that So you can see the action coming At this stage it's all Trying to keep the farm going Burying her parents Getting over the grief All that kind of stuff And then having to take on Like the mother character To this young orphan boy And She's really... Who's deaf. Yeah, but she's really just a kid herself, so how how that sort of changes her and trying to run the farm, go to school, keep up her friendships with her friends who've all been scattered right across the countryside, and that's where I'm up to as well. It, it might be very comical, but when you start talking about this young orphan boy and nobody really knows where he came from, all I can think of is, Anyang! <laughs> <laughs> no, I recall him in one of the previous books while I'm moving on from that. He was he was one of a, like a gang of street kids who became really rough just to sort of survive on the streets and he was like the roughest of them all. He was their leader. Yeah, he was. And they foisted themselves on this group of kids to see if they could put some order into the situation and take some care of them rather than these 10-year-olds effectively looking out after themselves. Mm, he's basically become like a little brother. So, mm. Mm. Well, th- sorry for that massive detour, Laurie, but uh, <laughs> I was a, a little bit curious about where that, that book fit in. Right. But what were you thinking about the uh, tomorrow? Well, I was raving because I loved it. And the things that I loved about it most, probably that the Australian voice of the series and obviously most recently, for my recollection, this particular book, is just a brilliant Australian voice that doesn't end up being a caricature, like my introduction. (laughs) (laughs) You've done it justice. No, no, I mean, 
mine was and his isn't. You never really feel slapped in the face by stereotypes or Australian cliches. I really appreciated that Australian voice. And the setting was just spectacular. I really had visions of not only the Blue Mountains and just Australian bush in general, but very specifically to me, when I was young, I lived on a farm, we've mentioned this before, but just up the road on one of the neighbours' places was a, a big wild outcropping of rocks and probably a few hundred metres in diameter. And we called it, amusingly now, the knob, but <laughs> <laughs> it was this big rocky knob on top of a hill, not knob in, as in penis, but just sort of... <laughs> Nobby outcropping. Methinks he doth protest too much. <laughs> no more goblins, please. <laughs> but anyway, this this place was very much like hell, except it wasn't like a giant ring that you would go into the middle of and there'd be an empty hollow in the middle, but just sort of a big, big giant collection of massive, massive boulders and trees and bushes. And it was a really wild and untamed and interesting place. So when I was reading about the characters going into hell, I had sort of very fond recollections of this very sort of primeval Australian setting. So I loved that very much. I thought the characters were at times imperfect, but really rose to the occasion and you touched on that before Keith and there's actually a quote about how John Marsden was inspired to write the book he was inspired to write tomorrow when the war began while watching an Anzac Day march a large number of teenagers were in attendance paying respect to the sacrifices made by the past generations he wondered how they might react if they were placed in the same position that their grandparents were at their age he felt that the popular media's view of the average young person as, quote, illiterate, drug-crazed, suicidal, alcoholic, criminal, promiscuous, a doll bludger, or all of the above, unquote, was wrong. It seemed to him that like the generations before them, modern teenagers would dig deep and find reserves of initiative, maturity, responsibility, and even heroism. And that's exactly what these characters did. I really loved it that just the average teenage bunch of kids could face this horrific situation and, and rise to the occasion, not only safely coming back and discovering what's happened, but making a real difference to the war effort at their own peril. We've had this sort of discussion with the Hunger Games. How do you think we'd fare? What would you do? I guess you'd do your darndest, <laughs> wouldn't you? You would. Yeah. yeah, I'd do exactly the same thing. Be very, very careful, mm. but not be inactive, I guess, especially if your family's sitting trapped nearby. Yeah, there's something appealing about being in that situation. I don't know if it's the same for you guys, but I kind of like to see how I would react in that situation. And I think I would be similar to these characters, but you only would find out for real in the situation. Well, I think that's why so many Australian kids loved this series, because they imagine themselves being those heroes, mm. rising to the occasion. If you can identify with that, then... It's not only the characters that go on this journey, but it's you as well. Yeah, definitely. And as you touched on, the characters weren't without flaws. So that really allows you to relate to them. You see the same weaknesses in yourself in the characters. You know, Ellie's constant battle with action versus planning. It played through really well, I think, and was really believable and relatable. The last couple of points that I liked about the book is stuff blows up. <laughs> Check. <laughs> yeah. But also... One thing that stuck with me since I read the book 
as a 13-year-old and sort of haunted me a little bit for a long time was the fear of the helicopters in a book. Not that I have an ongoing phobia of helicopters, <laughs> but the way he wrote about the helicopters being this all-seeing eye that swept around and was searching for them. I think I must have dreamed about it a few times as a kid. I found that a really penetrating and long-lasting piece of writing. So reading it again now, it still sent a little shiver up my spine. And I think if something as small and as trivial as a three-page part of the book can stick with you for many, many years, then it's great writing. For many years after I read this, I would open up my curtains very carefully at night to see if there was any kind of anything staring in at my window about to blow up my house. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, there you go, John. You are a timid reader, (laughs) That scene really freaked me out where they're in Corrie, is it Corrie's house? It is. And they're peeking through and they've just come to realise that there's something that it's not quite right and this... Jet notices some movement in the window and they basically have a couple of minutes warning and flies in and blows up her house and just that I find frightening. Every time I heard a noise in the sky, that was it. I was at the window peeking out very carefully trying to prevent the flutter of the curtains. If two out of four people have had that similar kind of experience, then you wonder if John Marsden's been responsible for uh, (laughs) a whole generation of kids growing up with fear of flying vehicles. Yeah, but your logic tells you that you're in Australia, so everything's fine, right? There's no issues. Mm, mm, I felt the tension there, but there was no uh, ongoing fear of helicopters. Yeah, I agree, Keith. I thought it was well written, but certainly I'm not going to be too worried when I hear the police chopper going over tonight. Well, when everything goes to hell and the economy crashes and we turn into a Mad Max style sort of wasteland apocalyptic scenario, the first thing I'll be dodging will be the helicopters from here. (laughs) (laughs) And lastly, the romance. It was conflicted and powerful and a little bit of a tease for the future books. I liked that part of it as a young man. So, yes, I liked it now. Tick, tick, tick. Mm -hmm. What about you, Pat? We've heard quite a bit from your why you chose it, but do you have some more thoughts on how your experience went this time? I guess I probably don't have huge amounts to follow up on that part with, and that's largely because I liked it again. It held up pretty well, I think, to my memories. It was comparable now to how I recorded in my mind, which is actually a good thing because it is a really good book. And whilst I started very critical, I was only talking about those first couple of pages because I think they could largely be excised from the text and you would have a near perfect young adult book there's a lot to like about it the characterization i I think is quite good the plot is excellent the explosions are phenomenal (laughs) as you alluded to and believable like i feel like that's something that you could achieve yeah it it ticks i mean there were there were a couple of points where i was sort of questioning in my mind is this is this scientifically accurate but then I just realized that I don't know whether it's scientifically accurate so it may as well be and I'll just roll with it anyway (laughs) sure these these explosions are absolutely plausible and they're delightful and it, it was it was great in that respect because my boyhood love of destruction has remained completely intact into my adulthood which maybe is problematic but does really really convey this visceral sense of I suppose guerrilla warfare it does have that tension it has the simmering points where the helicopter is just paused outside the house and they're they're waiting to see if there's any movement and then it 
it segues so nicely into the action sequences of blowing up lawnmowers, blowing up trucks, just generally causing chaos in the township. So there aren't many criticisms that I have that would level that out, I don't think, or that, that detract from that. One of the main ones I, I kind of had that I never had as a kid, granted, I swallowed the plot in its entirety as a kid and thought it was wonderful. But now I read it and I think, why why do these invaders care about this podunk town <laughs> in the middle of nowhere? This is, it's it's small fry Australiana, nothing sort of farming station town essentially with a a tiny population and Marsden throws out some justifications that there's a decent port there and the highway is useful for shipping freight but then qualifies that by saying it's got a crappy bridge that is too narrow for the highway and uh, but the entire invasion nominally or supposedly from the characters perspectives has been planned around the the show day sort of thing at, in this town where they can round up the populace and have them all neatly interned at the the showground and it to me it doesn't make any logical sense as an overarching strategy for invading a nation of 20 million people that you would want to subdue this small town of farmers and that's the key point because once you've got that done it's going to be easy from here on out <laughs> i didn't think it was just the one i thought it was part of a number but it was one of the key three or something certainly i don't think it's the the only one but it seemed like the the timing of the invasion was maybe that was speculation on on their part that may not be accurate may or may not be accurate but that the timing of the invasion would be such that they would want to capture all these civilians and that's the the other thing i don't really get is why why do they care so much about this civilian populace they supposedly want to be conducting a a quote-unquote clean invasion they don't want any human rights violations on their record but they come charging in and put pretty much all of the population they can into a POW camp. I don't know how they're going to manage to do that in every town they roll through in Australia. (laughs) That wasn't meant to be a permanent solution, though, right? They were meant to be indentured servants or something later on. Well, (laughs) who knows? And and then they start indiscriminately murdering any civilians who they see who haven't been already put in their detainment. It's not only the ones who are obviously fighting some kind of guerrilla warfare back, but pretty much... They have a shoot first, ask questions later policy with unarmed civilians that they see in the streets, which seems to me more like a genocide or something than a than a clean invasion. So I, I found that curious. I mean, maybe I'm Nitpicking. splitting hairs now, but why would you send in an airstrike to blow up a farmhouse? <laughs> <laughs> like- to frighten generations of readers. Obviously, it's had a profound psychological warfare effect on both Harry and Laurie. But beyond that, I can't... It happened, and I vaguely remembered that it was going to happen from my previous reading, but it sort of boggled the mind. I thought, why? What on earth? They obviously have munitions to spare. But if those are the biggest criticisms that I can levy, I suppose there can't be too much that's wrong with the book. Some of the characters grated at me a little bit periodically i found lee a little bit on the clingy side but Mm. i guess maybe lee is on the clingy side i can't really criticize the writer for bringing a character to life that maybe i don't like that much (laughs) they were all very quick to 
make declarations of love again coming from that that youth young adult perspective i think is perfect but maybe there were some niggles at the back of my adult mind uh, but overall really really good and i will now pass it on to you Bri, because <laughs> i think i've probably labored over my very minor points far too extensively <laughs> I don't have heaps to add to to you guys. I agree. It was great. I loved it. My copy is dog-eared. It was like coming home to reading this. It's probably been a good 10 – oh, hang on. Like, what year are we? It's probably been a good 15 to 20 years since I last picked it up. But I found myself smiling at various moments when the characters did something that I remembered fondly and giggling along when the snake enters the sleeping bag at the start of the book. Was that a um, euphemism or something? (laughs) Double entendre. Yeah, double entendre. (laughs) Only from you boys as teenagers, I'm sure. (laughs) Um, But Fee takes this giant leap into the water and then learns that that snakes can swim. So that kind of stuff just makes me laugh. It was good humour. And I like the relationship between the women. So I like that there are some true friendships that blossom from these. And I would say that they're disparate characters because they don't know each other particularly well in school. They all know of each other. They're all in the same district, but you've got a real mix of personalities. And Ellie says at the beginning that that's the point of bringing this motley group together. Personalities and cultural backgrounds too. It's Mm. quite a disparate group, which is something that's... Nice to see you. Typically Australian. I mean, you've got Homer from his Greek background and I'm sure we've all been at school with somebody from a Greek or an Italian background and Lee with his Asian heritage and the little fair-haired blonde fee and so on and so forth. So I think I agree. I think that's a really nice representation, I guess, of the microcosm that exists in our schools. And I really like the hint of romance you know it's this was was there a hint of romance (laughs) but it's even with between Ellie and Homer and it's not romance between them but there is this solid more than friendship it's more like a I guess and that gets developed in the other books as well but it's more like this brother sister type relationship We've got a classic Edward Jacob slash <laughs> uh, Peter slash the other guy uh, situation. Gail, is it? Gail. But with Fee thrown in the middle because Homer's totally taken with her. So hmm. It's a brother that she's not sure whether she wants to snog or not. Yes. <laughs> Bit of a Star Wars. Slash, uh, <laughs> J- Jamie Cersei situation. <laughs> I, I left out that classic pairing. I like the action. I like the bulldozer. I kind of feel like I should get one and drive it through the centre of Melbourne. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll be sure to check the news out that night. <laughs> I do find it slightly incredible that a, an unruly gang of teenagers can grab a, a, a tractor, whatever it was, a bulldozer, an earth mover mm. and manage to outrun hundreds of soldiers or combined might of the military suspend belief a little the only defense there though is the fact that not all of them were trained soldiers yeah. some of them were just conscripts that probably barely knew one end of the rifle from the other but and this is true they they all have conveniently shot themselves <laughs> as soon as the pursuit started <laughs> yeah there's a sliding scale of the quality of the the enemy that suits the situation perfectly mm. Yeah, they got chased by the the Three Stooges division in that scene, which was fortunate for them. So, in short, I loved it. 
and that's all. <laughs> well said. I want to pop some quotes in here just to show some of the, you know, the um, the qualities of the book that I enjoyed. So this one is sort of about the teen humour. Our only hope was an old fallen log that disappeared into the shadows and undergrowth, but at least seemed to be going in the right direction. That's our path, I said. Hmm, Homer said, coming up beside us. I straddled the log and started a slow slide down it. <laughs> she loves it, doesn't she? Kevin said. <laughs> I grinned as I heard the slap of Corrie's hand hitting some part of Kevin's exposed flesh. Uh, another one here is just about the language, and it is Australian vernacular. Oh, let me give you some more of that. Are you ready? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Guys, I don't know if it's possible or not, but there's plenty of people around Wirrawee who say it is. If you believe the stories, there was an old ex-murderer lived in there for years. The hermit from hell. If some pensioner can do it, we sure can. <laughs> I think we better give it our best shot. Let's make like dressmakers and get the tuck in there. <laughs> yeah, I like that one. I can highlight that one as well. <laughs> yeah, the other one here about the language. The path was covered with leaves and sticks and was a bit overgrown in places, but compared to what we'd been down, it was like a freeway. We stood spread out along it, marvelling. I felt almost dizzy with relief and astonishment and gratification. Ellie, Homer said solemnly, I'll never call you a stupid, dumb, obstinate slag heap again. <laughs> Thanks, Homer. It was a sweet moment. <laughs> There's another one. There was some rustle in the distance, which they think might be a soldier or something. We kept watching for quite a time, but saw nothing. Could have been a cat, I suggested. Could have been a platypus, but I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, John Marsden. Yeah, wonderful job. Not apparently a good enough job to get me to read any of the subsequent books. <laughs> I'm going back. Mm. You know, I'm convinced I'm going to stop reading 114752 or whatever it's called uh, <laughs> and go straight back into this series. I really want to revisit the rest. 112263, you'd be foolish not to finish reading that. But, yeah, <laughs> I can see why you'd want to go back and read the rest. Have we talked about any Stephen King classics this episode? I don't think we've covered that quote or all. Short, short Stephen King break? No? Oh, okay. Let's instead talk about the 2010 movie. Show of hands, who watched it? Yep. Not so long ago, but not this week. Patrick? I watched it in 2010. <laughs> all right, so I watched it on the weekend. Well, as far as your collective memory goes, what did you think of the movie when it was released? Did it, did it capture the essence of the book? I expected worse. <laughs> I I actually think that they did a reasonable job of fitting those that very exciting book into a shorter film and I loved the scenery. Well, I think it was sort of touted as a breakout crossover into Hollywood sort of Australian film, wasn't it? And I don't think it actually garnered the kind of success that they were hoping for as I suppose the lack of a sequel evinces. But uh, it... it was quite good. It was surprisingly good, I think. Yeah, I probably agree with both of those. I did see it at the cinemas when it came out as well, and there was a little bit of a you know neighbours or home and away element to it that you kind of had to cross that boundary to get into the acting, and it wasn't always like that. It was just the odd bits and pieces of acting that seemed a bit um, you know not up to standard of the rest of the film. But the the setting itself, yeah, that was really beautiful. A lot of it was filmed in, in the Blue Mountains, or the, the long shots were filmed in the Blue Mountains, the Gross Valley. Seeing that on the big screen was pretty awesome. I agree about the acting there, Keith. Sometimes Australian cinema, and not always, there's some really great Australian films with amazing actors, but some Australian cinema is just plagued by a slightly weak acting presence, and that's 
what I felt from this film. You sort of had to, yes, suspend dissatisfaction, I guess, with acting a little bit. <laughs> and if you could get past that, then, yeah, it was quite a quite a good adaptation. I thought the action, yeah, you're right, Brie, was really good. I was surprised by the level of special effects. I thought they'd be terrible, but it actually yeah. seemed quite real. Yeah, it was <laughs> quite a big budget, I think. Mm, okay. And the cinematography was quite excellent. There was a couple of scenes where it was a little bit dodgy, where they were, uh, you, you could see things like they were standing against a fake background a couple of times. Mm. But on a whole, again, sorry Australian cinema, but on a whole for an Australian film, I thought the effects and the cinematography were just top notch. Yeah, like Pat said, it was aiming to hit that sort of Hollywood level and it almost got there, I think. The ending was a bit naff, I thought. The way they sort of rocked up on this rock wearing, like they'd transformed into these military... Superstars. Yeah, that's right. I think Lee has a rocket launcher on his back. It's quite... <laughs> oh, that's <tough. laughs> Yeah, that was a bit... I don't remember that. <laughs> it's Team America. I think it didn't do justice to the rest of the film, but it did have also a really good soundtrack. A lot of it was Australian music, which I liked. Mm. One thing they did do in a couple of places I found a little bit annoying was... A- bit too much simplification of the script there were just a few scenes where if they just stuck to the script a little bit more or not dumbed it down a little it would have been 10 times as good yeah I, I agree but there was there was actually a fair bit that was actually ripped straight from the book which I liked like it was word mm. for word so having just read the book and watched the movie it was word for word spot on exactly what was in the book which was good because it was right. pretty loyal to the book I mean it cut out the the hermit subplot but it was pretty loyal in terms of condensing it into a sub two-hour movie, it did a pretty good job. Nothing Mm. really lost with losing the Hermit subplot. No. (laughs) Not really. I guess that was in the book to act as a catalyst for some of Ellie's decisions Mm. with Lee and also with fighting back. But, yeah, in the movie it wasn't missed. Yeah, it's a bit hard to address some of those themes that are largely internal when you're making a film. Mm. A lot of the themes are brought across through Ellie's writing and you can't have a character standing on screen talking about how they feel for 15 minutes before they get to the next bit of action. So, Mm. yeah, yeah, I think it was pretty loyal. You're right. Yeah, so after a slow start, that lead actress did a pretty good job, I thought. (laughs) She wasn't really Ellie, though, in my opinion. Sure, she might have acted okay in the movie, but... Ellie was sort of described as this, well, it never says rough, but I think she's, they, they call her like stout or solid. Or... <laughs> she, yeah, she says something about uh, her shape herself. She comments on it. I can't remember what the exact phrasing was, but it was it was in that ball. Wombat-y or right. something perhaps? <laughs> yes, like a, like a wombat. Yes. Yeah, right. So you think of this really strong, I mean physically strong and experienced farmhand, and when I look at this really attractive Slim, home and away actor. Yes, she did have a sort of a tomboy element to her, so I think it wasn't that far from believable. But yeah, you're right; it was different to the Ellie in the book. So there's a TV series which is coming up on the ABC later this year. Yeah, it's April that it we screened on ABC Three. Right, that's not too far away yeah. at all. No, and I think it's going to be a six-parter. So that gives you, I imagine, each episode is going to be what maybe forty minutes to an hour. I hope. Yeah, I think so. So that gives you a bit more scope for drawing out the characters a bit more. Have they specified what portion of the series they're going to cover? Is it tomorrow or is it going to be? Yeah, that's right. So they've said that these six episodes will cover basically the happenings in the first book. Okay. Ah, So potentially another six years to go. I think six is quite a lot actually for, for the first book, but 
Well, well I can really draw out the character side of things across six episodes, and that's like that's I guess what the strength of TV has become these days. That's what I'm afraid of. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's something we didn't touch on in the movie. The movie sort of had to give the um, the invaders an identity that the book didn't have to. Uh, even though we didn't see explicitly what country they were from, we saw that they were of Asian race. I think we knew that anyway, didn't we? Because they, they said that they wanted to address imbalances in the region and yeah. I think the only people that we have in our region are New Zealanders, <laughs> Patrick, <laughs> and filthy New Zealanders, people from Southeast Asia. So Yeah, but it was very careful not to actually identify them. Like when they gave descriptions of the, of the invaders, it was always based on their age and, and their attire, but never on their, you know, other physical characteristics, which... Mm was a bit of a tease in the book. So the TV show and the movie had to obviously address that because you can't hide behind words when you have to show pictures. They should have mm. just made them American. <laughs> what? We'd be crushed like a watermelon. <laughs> Actually, I was going to watch, um, there's another movie and the name escapes me now. Red Dawn. Red Dawn, that's it. Yeah, which was a movie, I think in the early 80s, which people draw comparisons between that and this because it's a group of high school students that basically fight back against foreign invaders. And the original one was Russians because of the climate of the Cold War when the movie came out. But they redid it in, I think, 2012. And there was a couple of Australian actors in that, actually. What's his name? Liam Hemsworth and Isabella Lucas. And they changed who the invaders were. And I think at one point they were going to be Chinese, but based on the audience, they ended up changing them to North Koreans. So, yeah, that's, I guess, something that you could do with this book because it hasn't clearly identified who the who the opposition is. So the TV show maybe will have, who knows, as the invaders. You know, that makes it a bit more timeless as well. I think that was a good strategy because at one stage maybe... In 1993, maybe we would have been thinking it might have been Indonesia that was knocking on our door. But now, maybe we think it might be, I don't know, China or North Korea or whoever the local devil is. Yeah, there were a few other anachronisms, though, when you read it now. Like the comments about the US being loath to get involved because they're a bit isolationist. They're not really into interfering in foreign policy in other countries oh, yeah. did, you, did you catch that and just reading that given that what, what has transpired from the the 90s to now you think oh my lord that could be more off the mark <laughs> Bree and I had a discussion earlier in the week about this and I was making up an argument that this is actually set in a slightly alternate reality anyway they talk about commemoration day and is that actually a real Australian holiday in any parts of Australia? Not that I'm aware of, but, you know, they're small towns. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I think there's a few bits in the book that do make it slightly alternate to the real reality. A, Commemoration yeah. Day. And B, there's all this talk about a background of the aggressor stirring up trouble and threatening America. And we don't really know what kind of political manoeuvring has been going on prior to this. So maybe America's been put in a position where they don't want to act because they've already been cast as the evil world police. Not that that's ever stopped them. But <laughs> I have to put a C in there as well. There's reference to this video game, which I've never heard of. So I think that's a completely alternate reality. They could have chosen an, an actual video game. What, Catacomb? It was an actual it, video it, game. It was a, Catacomb. Yeah, it was a ripper. Is it? Well, there you go. You clearly don't spend enough time <laughs> behind a console. This would be a nice segue into next week's book. <laughs> well, we can't do that until we've had scoring with Pat. 
Scoring with Pat. Yeah. Scoring with Pat. This is the theme song for Scoring with Pat. <laughs> scoring. Let's let's do it. It's, it's quick. It's fast. It's well prepared. One. One point for this book. John Marsden has infringed upon the Geneva Convention by deploying copious pubescent hormones into a war zone. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, two, this IED was all fizzle and no boom. Three. <laughs> well, there's nothing wrong with that. Oh, Laurie's reading oh, you on a different, le- listening on a different level, I think. You know what? We're finally going to get some Facebook comments and they're all going to be from vets. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> the, the NSA. Yeah. Uh, three, like the characters, brooding and impetuous, occasionally soulful. Four, as thrilling as popping wheelies on the golf course. (laughs) Five, hotter than a night in hell. Slash recently changed to hotter than a snake in a sleeping bag. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What do you guys think? Laurie first. It's not going to be any big surprise to anyone that I quite think of it as... A snake up a sleeping bag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think I predicted that one. Yeah, it's it's five for me as well, and this one isn't to drag the average up. Bree. <laughs> <laughs> love, love, love it. It's a five for me as well. Oh, I, I feel Drag like us a real down. Here he goes. Now. Don't you do it, Pat. It's un Australian. Uh, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> look, I'm going to give it a four. It's still popping wheelies on the golf course. I really liked it. Maybe just a, a few minor niggles at the back of my mind that prevent me from throwing up a five, but really, it's not far off the mark. Sorry, John, I'll give him your address. I mean, I'll give him, give you his address. <laughs> you expect me to go knock on his door yeah. and <laughs> prostrate myself upon his porch? I'm sorry, John. I'm sorry. Uh, next episode. Bree, why don't you tell us what's coming next? Finding Audrey by Sophie Kinsella. Thanks for that detailed rundown, Bree. <laughs> I didn't have enough notice. (laughs) If you haven't heard of it before, you still haven't. (laughs) Until then, (laughs) until then, if it walks on legs or flies on wings, if it walks or crawls or slithers or swims, it's probably good bush tucker. So throw it on the barbie, grab a good book, and keep reading. We're off like a bride's nighty. <laughs> Sorry, I just enjoyed the end of it. That was good. I'm still seeking tumble. I'm still seeking tumble. I think your accent gets more broad, Laurie, when you talk about uh, Australian content. Oh, that was intentional, though, right? No, no, not in the intro. In the uh, in the what I what I think, I think it carried over. Oh bullshit, Pat! What are you talking about, <laughs> mate? I'm mad as a cut snake <laughs> that you would say something like that. Uh, I might edit that in. <laughs>